5: welcome welcome
6: welcome back to the bob left sets podcast my guest today is Noel paul skuki yes paul of peter paul and mary no how you doing <laughs> i'm good paul i heard paul so like you must be an east coast kind of guy you know, it's funny, I'm from Connecticut and people from Connecticut think that they don't have an accent, but you've just proven that that's <laughs> untrue.
7: <laughs> well, I used to be uh mid East coast. I was born in Maryland, lived, uh, born in Baltimore, lived in Maryland for quite a few years before moving to the Midwest. But when you move to the Midwest, they say most, uh, disc jockeys and radio people come from the Midwest because they lose their accent. And to a large extent, I think that's true. I I don't I don't hear that I have an accent except if I have to pronounce the word milk. Peter used to rag me all the time because <laughs> I'd say, "I'll take a glass of milk." He said, "Exactly. <laughs> There's an e in there that we don't have on the East Coast." <laughs> yeah, that's right. I spent a
6: summer in uh, Chicago in '69, which makes me f- an antique, but. They called soda pop, which was a new thing for uh-huh, me. Uh-huh, uh-huh.
7: Yeah, yeah. Okay, you're in— Egg creams were a new thing to me when I moved to New York. Yeah, I mean, That's very that. much
6: a New York thing. I mean, I had heard about them, but uh, I grew up in Connecticut, 50 miles from New York, and you certainly just couldn't run around and get an egg cream in Fairfield, Connecticut, or Bridgeport <laughs> right next to it. No. But
7: right now you're in Maine? I am. I'm on the coast. Uh, beautiful Little town that I am reluctant to give you the title of because many people will want to move here uh, (laughs) and obscure the quaintness of the village. But, yeah, I live in Blue Hill, Maine. Uh, I have for the past 47 years with my wife, Betty, uh, of 57 years. And we brought our three children up here, uh, followed a back-to-the-earth movement, really, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s.
6: Absolutely,
7: yeah, which on top after of we a, were
6: licking our wounds after uh, the Vietnam War protests,
7: yeah, yes, well, the the desire I think of every human heart is to get to the essence of what life is all about, and it's hard to do that when you're being shaken around in New York City. so uh, we were very happy to move here. Life was simpler, uh we had to abandon some of the uh, niceties, but then we found you know, deeper niceties, and uh, it's been. And, of course, you know, pandemic notwithstanding, uh, it's been very easy to travel. Uh, most of my work was on a stage. If it wasn't in Ohio, it was in San Francisco or Utah or Chicago. Uh, so it didn't really make any difference where my home base was. Okay. How far from Boston are you? Uh five-hour drive, maybe. Okay. Maybe. So what's the nearest main city? Oh, Bangor. That's where the airport is. Oh, you're way up there. I've uh-huh. been to Bangor. Oh, you have? <laughs> wow, yeah, I went
6: on a canoe trip
7: uh-huh. on the
6: Allagash once again. That was 68, but we flew to Bangor, and then you had to take like a four-hour
7: bus ride. People have no idea how large Maine really is. That's true. That's true. You get uh, to go far north. is But boy, it is beautiful. Uh, it You know, there are, what, a million people in the whole state? Uh, and I would say fully a quarter of them living in the Portland area. So, uh, I think that accounts for the reason that people are so friendly to one another because there's so few of us. We're so happy to see each other. Oh my gosh. Another human being. Uh, it's, it's great. And I'm, yes, you're right. We are really up here. It's almost in down what you'd consider down East.
6: Okay. So the water never gets warm where you are.
7: Not really. (laughs) Okay. And how many people are in the town of Blue Hill? Oh, about 2,500. In the summertime, it swells to maybe 3,500. Okay. So at least a decent number. You're not there uh, twiddling your fingers alone. So you say you've been
6: married for 57 years. isn't And that also you've mm-hmm. lived your life to a great degree on the road. The combination doesn't <laughs> always work. You so got what, is, that
7: right. what is the secret to success? Well, it's a combination of Friendship, now that that may sound lightweight uh, when you're trying to re- describe a marriage relationship, but the fact is, Betty and I went to high school together in Michigan, and though we never dated then, we knew of each other for various reasons. She was a knockout dream queen cheerleader, and a uh, year behind me, and I was the local rock and roll kid uh, with my own rhythm and blues band in high school, and we met. Get this, Bob. In the distance, we'll hear a drum roll. <laughs> we, we, met, we met by chance coming out of a subway in New York City some eight years later. And I said, Betty Bannard," And she said, Noel Stookie? And her date said, you know, we really got to get moving along. <laughs> and I said, that's all right. I'll walk with you to the wherever you're going. So that beginner relationship. But. The challenges of being on the road and maintaining a relationship uh, were many, and I wasn't always equal to the task. The first 10 years were filled with so much uh, success and so much work. I mean, honestly, we did 300 shows a year, 300 shows in one year. And that's, you know, we're trying to shoehorn in record albums, television appearances, publicity, travel. Uh, Itself, You know, a half day to get there and a half day to get back. So a remarkable wife who has raised now uh, three daughters with me, uh, you can understand why we would want to get out of the city and simplify our life. And frankly, if it hadn't been for a deep longing to know who I was and what this thing called living was all about, I wouldn't have taken the spiritual turn that I took in the late 60s, which really changed my life, uh, gave me a whole perspective on what really has value, uh, you know, other human beings, and also uh, a desire to be authentic. Now, I grew up as an only child, so I could be authentic to myself, but what did it mean to be authentic to the world? Uh, does that mean telling the truth all the time? Well, Passing through the gate of marijuana, uh, one can be overly uh, authentic with people. And I tended to be a little excessive the first, uh, oh, say, 10, 12 years of my life. But ultimately, I have been very blessed to discover the language of metaphor, which is what songwriting is all about, and realize that everybody has a spiritual sense. They just need to be acquainted with it. You know, the atheist who denies God really is very hard-pressed to deny love, and yet if you read the Bible, you see that Paul says that God is love. And if you interact normally in your life, you begin to recognize the value of love in your own life, whether it's interpersonal or whether it's kind of faith that tomorrow will be a better time. So all of those things factored into how I've been able to enjoy this marriage with this beautiful woman that I married still enjoy uh, companionship with my children. Uh, there's a lot of humor, a lot of laughter. Um, some of it, uh, you know, is hard pressed. Some of it, particularly in these uh, contested times in which we live, where we're taught by our leaders to mistrust uh, that which we read and we end up uh, carrying that over into a mistrust of each other or a cynicism. It's more of a challenge than it used to be. But at the core of it, Bob, I swear, if you can retain your compassion for your fellow human beings, uh, for your fellow citizens, um, you can make a go of it. You can turn lemons into lemonade, and you can create hope where there has been fear and distrust. Okay, let's talk about this
6: spiritual—you can't see the air quotes on the podcast—conversion. <laughs> uh, this is not uncommon with musical artists, traveling people, where almost, you know, they're partaking of substances, and all of a sudden they find themselves on the floor, and they have a transformative moment. Was that how
7: it happened to you, or was it an evolution? How did the light go on? Um, You know— I think once again, if I can refer to being an only child, there's an inner dialogue going on all the time because I didn't have brothers or sisters to have that dialogue with. So there's a refutation, uh, a a kind of a distrust uh, that's built into the character of an only child because he doesn't really know what's dependable. And so this whole barrel of fame and fortune that, landed on me in 1960 was increasingly more difficult to figure out personal worth from. Uh, if I was standing in line with Betty waiting to go into a movie and the manager saw and recognized me, he'd say, oh, oh Mr. Stuckey, come on, come on, you, you don't, you don't have to wait. You start to take those or oh, mr stookie we, we we have a table i don't have a reservation we it's okay we have a we have a table for you oh mr stookie uh, here c- come here you begin to believe your own press clippings and that becomes a very empty uh, hollow existence because you have to make a choice you are either going to start believing it and buying into it or if you're trying to be real, uh, you're going to stick with people who are truth tellers, like my wife, uh, or that little piece of conscience that you hung on to since you were a little kid that told you it was bad to take that piece of candy from the five in time. And you say, okay, well, it's bad to borrow on other people's awarenesses. Uh, I just want to be a citizen. So it wasn't really a drug problem that brought me to my knees. It was more of a soul problem. Um, I just really needed to know if there was some direction in life that was valuable with a capital V and, you know, I don't know if you want to hear the whole story, but I was backstage in Austin, um, in Abilene, Texas, and a kid. And I'm going through these changes. You know, I'm asking myself, "What's life all about?" My God, you know, I want to be on the on the right side. I want to be on the good side. Now, parenthetically, I have to insert here something that you already know. When you're out in the world and there's a chance to do good, whether it's uh, feeding or housing the homeless, or whether it's protesting the war in Vietnam, or whether it's marching for human rights, there is a sense of participation in something that's bigger than yourself and something that's good. So notwithstanding those kind of uh, encouragements, one asks oneself, well, okay, but these are just actions. I want to be connected with these actions. I want to have a sense of familial participation in the betterment of the world. Where do I find that? so flat end parentheses flash flash back to uh Adeline, Texas, this kid comes up to me backstage. there's nobody around you know um uh, security's pretty good at concerts, and usually people don't you know are not allowed backstage, so I'm back there tuning the guitar, and there's this kid standing there, and he says, uh, can I talk to you <laughs> i say, well, uh, I'll I'll look for you after, okay? I'm a little busy right now. But as those things go and one tries to be true to one's word, when the show was over, I tried to look for him. And sure enough, there he was. So in the midst of a bunch of people, maybe a half dozen of them, handing me albums to sign and pictures and telling me about the last time that they saw the trio, I turned to the kid and say, what was it you wanted to talk to me about? and he says i want to talk to you about the lord <laughs> and phew, the, i don't know the the, uh, the bottom dropped out of reality and i go oh oh okay uh well hang on just a second <laughs> but my heart is going chaboom 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 because it's like an answer to prayer you know where did this guy come from and what gives him the audacious right to say that he wants to talk to me about the lord so we get, so the crowd clears out and he says, I think we should go someplace where we can talk. I say, well, sure. Well, let's go back to my hotel room. Heart's still going, bum, 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 bum. But now I'm beginning to think, hey, I'm a star here. Okay. I got, I got a reputation. I've got, I've got knowledge of the world. I've, I've, I've smoked dope. I've, I've read Edgar Casey. I, I understand the complexity of things. So as we climb into the back of his pickup truck, his friends are driving. I turn to him and I say, so uh, what do you think about reincarnation? You know, trying to level out the balance of our spiritual experiences. And he says, well, it may or may not be true, but I think we have more important things to talk about tonight, don't you? (laughs) So we go back to the hotel room and I'm fussing all around. I'm, you know, would you like a Coke? Uh, Do you want me to open the window? Anything but confront what it is this kid's possibly going to say. And he says, I think we should pray. And at that moment, he hits the floor on his knees. His friends hit the floor on their knees. And so I do, too. And all he said, Bob, was, I think no one wants to say, or, thank you, Lord, for getting me uh, backstage without uh, into the concert without a ticket, backstage without a pass. And I think no wants to talk to you. And I just started to cry. Because in that moment, I realized how disenfranchised I was from the core of belief. And that was the transformative moment for me. Uh, after that, I can't say that, you know, uh, I moved as beatifically as St. Francis. I was really kind of a bore and and uh i was antagonistic i was aggressive i was uh, i was a jesus freak uh for about 2 years before i learned the language or readopted the language of metaphor and could speak uh about my faith and what had happened to me in terms that other people could understand, maybe even sympathize with, maybe even emulate. But when you use labels to describe your situation, you're adopting somebody else's descriptions. Uh, And they don't always sit well. They're not personalized. Uh, so over these past, what, 40 years or so, 40 to 50 years, I've learned the language of inclusiveness uh, in terms of expressing my faith. Um, so the transformation didn't stop, uh, you know, in 1969, 1970. It began in 1969, 1970, and I'm still I'm still going through. Uh, matter of fact, I had this... You want to? Can I do a little song for you? Uh, well, the only issue is a rights issue. Who wrote the song? Okay, well, we're covered. There's this guy named Stukey that used to sing with Peter, Paul, and Mary. He wrote the song. Okay, and you own the song? And I own the song. Out okay, out. then
6: you can sing. Just
7: say you're giving us permission. Okay, I'm giving you permission. But I'm wondering if maybe, uh, yeah, so I'll just do a little bit of it, but you'll get the idea. <clears throat> Let's talk about love with capital L. When was the last time you heard it spelled with the emphasis in the proper place? Ooh, yeah. Let's talk about love in the uppercase. Some might call it amazing grace or the author of... Uh, time and space, let's talk about love, 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 love. You may recall this situation, change a heart you hadn't seen, where love's the only explanation for a miracle that sets somebody free, oh yeah. Let's talk about love with a capital L. Not talking about witchcraft or a magic spell or hanky panky in a cheap motel. Nice no, talk love, 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 love. I'm not saying that I love you. Any more or any less. I'm just saying that there's more here than we are usually willing to confess. Let's, let's talk about love, where it all began. Yeah, love, love, love like a master plan. If you believe, Then raise your hand and let's talk about love, 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 love love with a capital L.
6: Woo! So, how we? That's for a couple of things. A. How old is that song? Mm, Six months, maybe. Wow, you still got it. Secondly, you still have your voice when many people, you know, they get older and uh, their voice subsides. Any special trick or just, you know, God helped
7: you out there? (laughs) Uh, Oh, that's a nice way to put the question. Doubtless there's some assistance from, uh, you know, having faith. Uh, But, no, I I haven't smoked since August 14th, 1970. And you may ask why I remember that date so specifically. I was driving with a friend, Jim Mason, who produced a couple of Poco albums. And there was a cigarette. There was a cigarette lighter hole, but no cigarette lighter in the rental car that he was driving. And we both had cigarettes. And I took that as a sign. So I reached over, took the cigarette out of his mouth, out of my mouth, threw it out the window. And I said, August 14th, 1970, the day Noel Stuckey and Jim Mason stopped smoking. Well, unfortunately, it was true for me. But, you know, you can't make truth for somebody else. He went back to it, eventually quit. but uh, So I think not smoking has helped a lot. I still do Drink a fair amount. I mean, I like to have a margarita in the evening and maybe a glass of wine with dinner. Um, my wife certainly keeps me on the straight and narrow in terms of nutrition. You know, lots of veggies and and I'm living in the country, Bob. I mean, it's laid back here. And you know, if the pandemic didn't lay me <laughs> didn't lay me back any further, I'd be lying in bed. But uh, it's very comfortable and very inspiring to be here
6: okay speaking of inspiration Mm. uh we live in an era very different from the one you came up in you came up it was a monoculture if you were successful everybody knew your name whereas today it's really uh a cornucopia of stuff so how do you keep your
7: inspiration to create Mm. well i've i've always been uh, you know i have to confess that i'm not a writer who writes uh, for remuneration. That's why folk music was so great for me, because uh, it's an institution that uh, that depends on people articulating concerns of the day. Um, they don't write for money. They uh, They write because it had to be said. So I really am a cathartic writer. That is to say, I don't sit down, like a Burt backrack and generate music every day because it's a discipline that I feel I have to obey. I really respond to the particular moment or the particular concern. I mean, when I did, when I did impeachable to the tune of unforgettable that went viral on, on YouTube and Facebook, I was responding to what I felt were flagrant, uh, offenses uh, by Donald Trump. And I thought that they would be traceable to, uh, to Russia that that investigation went by the by, uh, when Mueller was, uh, removed from the opportunity to take it to its finality, uh, uh, along with Comey. And, and then I wrote, uh, <laughs> I wrote a song called, I will stand, uh, you know, that open, the election is over. Some say what's done is done. Well, it's easier if your side is won. Um, so why don't we just work together? And I said, well, there are a list of things that I'm not going to work together on. And I sang a song with about nine of them. And there's also a reinforcement, you know, uh, for instance, if I was creating totally in a vacuum, uh, I'd probably have a more difficult time sustaining it, but When you go in front of anywhere from 15 to 1,500 people and you make a statement musically, you're going to find out pretty quickly if the audience agrees with it. Now, they may, one, think it's entertaining, uh, in which case the applause will be light and smattering, (laughs) or they may think that it's moving, in which case you will get a very pronounced heavy applause at the end of it, like I sometimes do for the two new verses I wrote to America, The are beautiful. Or sometimes you will get an, un, a response that you just hadn't planned on, like people standing up in the middle of what you're singing about or cheering uh, in the middle of a verse because they agree so strongly with what's being said and the manner in which it's being said. So, those encouragements keep me going. But to return to your original question, I basically write in response to that which I see needs articulation.
6: Okay, one has to ask since you're talking about politics, you're talking about today's world, I must ask, as a resident of Maine, why did Susan Collins get reelected?
7: Well, I mean, aside from all the impressive monies that were spent to degrade her opponent, uh, because actually, there's two sides to that street. There was a lot of impressive monies that were spent to degrade Susan Collins. Essentially, the reasoning behind the deposition of Susan Collins was that she was uh, Trump's lapdog, um, that anything Trump wanted, she voted for. Well, that's, you know, Maine is not a totally liberal state. I mean, we're very, we're, I can't speak for the natives, but they're all straight shooters as far as I'm concerned. You know, they're really honest, uh, God-fearing, uh, if you work hard. I mean, they're the American ethic uh, underlined. And Susan Collins has been there for most of them, most of the time. And like I was telling your engineer before, uh, a lot of Trump's success is not because of who he is, but the fact that people who voted for him are single issue voters. And the people that voted for Susan Collins were single issue. You know, they, uh, they wanted to support somebody who uh, is more anti-abortion than she is pro life. Uh, She uh, or pro choice. Uh, They wanted to support somebody that they knew, uh, particularly in this cacophony of political um, chaos that was echoing all around us. And like I said, the issues were uh, pretty angrily uh, ignored uh, so that character assassination <laughs> could take place. And she had more bucks. And I think she made her uh, point uh, about Gideon's family to the point where, you know, people bought into it. Well, and then I don't want to go someplace that I don't know about. I'm going to stick with Susan. But I had a bumper, had a bumper sticker on the back of my truck that said, Bye-bye, Susan. That was a big popular <laughs> sign.
0: <laughs> Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list.
3: In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get
5: your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals, each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Okay, let's go back to the beginning.
7: So what did your parents do for a living? You were an only child? Yeah, my dad was uh, a, really a mechanical engineer with very clever. Uh, he is very clever, hands-on kind of guy. Uh, he worked for the Gates Rubber Company during the war years and then had a couple of promotions that took us to Michigan one and then to Pennsylvania, uh, where living 90 miles from New York City just made me thirsty to move to the city eventually. and. In 1960, uh, 59, uh, my mom was a, uh, <laughs> she was a cashier at a restaurant where my dad used to go and play the pinball machine. And he would come up <laughs> to her, he would come up to her and ask her for a uh, change and she would hand him a bunch of nickels and he became known as Nick. That was his nickname. Uh, she came from uh, the St. Aubrey family had a, actually a uncle, I think who designed Joliet prison. Uh, the architecture for Joliet Prison. Um, She was a very gracious, lovely, lovely woman, Um, spiritual in her own way, former Catholic. Dad was a former Mormon, um, but they both had to leave their uh, religions to get married. For Dad, it was a second marriage. Um, And they brought me up in the country, in a little town called Dorsey, Maryland, about halfway between Baltimore and Washington. And that that was a great experience for me. I mean, we you know farmed with a horse pulling a plow. I had woods out behind and a lake up on top of a mountain, and um, and a handful of friends. And I say that in in a positive way. I had five of the closest buddies you could ever want. Uh, we did everything together, explored together, played games together, imagined together. Uh, I even had a circus uh, <laughs> in my garage where i put the cat under an orange crate and dragged her around in a wagon and uh my friends were you know the strong man my friends were selling lemonade my friends were uh the ringmaster um and then i had i and once again returning to the theme of being an only child i had all of the imagination in the world available to me um My parents were really, really supportive uh, all the time. Uh, And my dad had a four-string tenor guitar, uh, which I I thought was just a big ukulele uh, as I grew up, but then discovered that it could be tuned like a ukulele. And that's really where I began uh, loving making music. Yeah.
6: And did you take any lessons? How did you ultimately become a performer and more of a rock and roll performer?
7: Uh, well, you know, I'm I'm 14, 15 years old. How can you not be a rock and roll performer? That's what you're hearing. You know, well, I mean, you want to be kind of hip. So, but I'll tell you, hip was not Elvis Presley to me, who I just tried to imitate there. Hip was the Pontiac african-american record store because it was rhythm and blues it was the doo-wop it was the street music uh that really got to me and uh we had a group in high school called the birds of paradise um we wrote our own theme song the birds of paradise do-wah are here to say hello. Do-do-wah. The only way they know do do is with the song. <laughs> there were five of us, drummer, bass player, <clears throat> and uh, three singers, and, uh, and my guitar. And we... We were busy. We put out an album. I mean, that was unheard of for a high school group in nineteen fifty-five. We pressed our own album and sold it in the high school with some original songs that are still embarrassing to me when I hear them done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you graduate from high school, what's the next step? Well, I always I I I, I had a job part time job in a camera shop in Birmingham, Michigan. And I made movies uh, with my friends in Birmingham. Um, this was after the move to Michigan, and took that knowledge with me to New York. But I'll tell you, I don't know how many times in your life, Bob, you have walked in through the door expecting one kind of response, received another, and then recognized it was, "Hey, that's a heck of a lot better response than the one I was expecting." <laughs> <laughs> I, I answered an ad in the New York Times. For what I thought would be a camera shop job. And it turned out the guy uh, said, I'm sorry. He said, You're applying for a, your experience is all in a camera shop. This is for a photocopier job. And I went, Selling photocopier machines. And I went, Oh, he said, But wait just a minute. And he walked into the back room. And it turns out that this was the beginning of Unibath, which was a single chemical process. For the three stages that are usually required to to process negatives uh, from photographic film and we worked with the jet propulsion lab well anyway i got the job worked with the jet propulsion lab and went down to the village to play chess one day and uh or one night with some friends in the business and the table was gone where we usually played chess and they were constructing a stage i said what's going on and he said oh we're We're going to have entertainment here in the village, which was pretty new in 1969. I mean, there were poets that stood up, but there were no stages. Uh, And I said, well, what do you have to do to entertain here? Remembering that I was a a nascent uh, rock and roll star. (laughs) He said, well, come down and audition. So in my three-piece Brooks Brothers suit, I went down to Greenwich Village and did the Mickey Mouse song as a rock and roll tune. Like M-I-C-K-E-Y? You got it. Who's the leader, doo-doo-wah, of the band? Anyway, they thought I was weird enough uh, that they hired me, and one thing led to another. I always loved Jonathan Winters, um, you know, the sound effects. I was doing sound effects in high school. The moment I realized I could abuse a microphone for fun and profit, I I went for it. So I was doing traffic noises and uh, the... Probably the most famous sound effect that I did in the village was the American Standard, which I would introduce as a song and then do the flush of a a toilet. Can Uh, you still do that? Yes, I can. But I don't know if this mic will let me. It was, uh, I did get the handle. I went, and then.
6: Very good, very good. Okay,
7: so you're a jack of all trades down there in the village. I was, I was. And I was a good, I think I was a good choice for that. I was a, I, everything from a mater d' to a comedian to a songwriter to the master of ceremonies. Because no really, no serious artist actually wanted to get up and introduce another artist. I mean, they might do it as a tail end to their performance, but they didn't want to do it as a constant. But I was, uh, I was fine with that, um, because of my, uh, I don't know, my predilection for wanting to make nice. So, uh, when Albert Grossman came in and said, uh, have you ever thought of being in a group? Albert Grossman going on to become the manager of, uh, Dylan, Jimmy, of Janice Ian, uh, the band, uh, I said, well, no, I got a few things I want to do by myself. Evidently at the result of that, uh, meeting, he went back to Peter and said, well, he said no, but I think he will. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's what made Albert, what Albert was. And he was right. The turning point came in Mary's apartment after about five months of rehearsal, uh, where we had taken, we come up with about six tunes, uh, On the supposition that maybe if Albert liked them, he'd we could be in a group. And the words out of uh, Albert were, "Well, have you thought about a name for the group?" And yeah, and we said, "Yeah, we've been thinking about the Willows." And he said, "Well, how about if Noel changes his name, we could we could call the group Peter, Paul, and Mary." Well, I don't know if you're familiar with a song called "The Ten Thousand Year Old Man." Is, well,
6: I know you're talking about the comedy routine.
7: No, no, no. I'm talking about the uh the song, the folk song. I was born about ten thousand years ago.
6: Actually, I don't know
7: it. Okay, well, I'll give you a little verse. And there's nothing in this world that I don't know. Get ready. Here comes the alliteration. I saw Peter Paul and Moses playing ring around the roses, and I'll whoop the guy that says it isn't so. It's a cute song. Talks about the development of world history, but the Peter Paul and M was already there on our lips, but I recognized, oh my gosh, I am, I'm not going to be a Carrie Wisanowski, you know, known as a Carrie Grant later or whatever. I'm, I want to hang on to my name, but then it occurred to me, I never did like my middle name of Carol. So I'll tell you what, Albert, I'll take it on as a middle name, not knowing that my middle name was going to take me on and take me out because from there on, There's a funny thing that happens when you get interviewed. You know, somebody sits down and says, so tell me, Paul. Now, they've already assumed something about you, (laughs) which for most people would not be a handicap. But for me, I wanted to defend the fact that Noel was my first name. But it became immediately obvious that the question they were asking me was more important than straightening them out as to what my first name was. So Paul took me over for about 10 or 12 years. Um, Then after the spiritual change and having my own life, when Peter, Paul, and Mary took seven years off for good behavior between 1970 and 1978. When I came back to the group, I said, okay, let's use my full name. Now I'm Noel Paul Stuckey. However you want to couch that. That's what, that's who I am. That's, that's fine. But I need to have my first name happening. So Okay, so, okay, we jumped through
6: a few things there. You're, you're there, you change the name. Tell us about the agreement for Albert to actually manage you, how you selected the initial songs, how you got a record deal, and what happened there. Wow.
7: Okay, well, down, down in the weeds a little bit more. Um, Albert was handling Peter as a solo artist and felt that Peter's voice deserved a better setting. Uh, so he wanted to create a group, uh, the first member of the group that he thought of was Mary Travers, whose picture was hanging up on the wall. Peter said, who's that, uh, in, uh, Izzy Young's folklore center in Greenwich village. And Albert looked up and knew who she was because she had sung with the, with, uh, the Harry Belafonte singers and, uh, and Pete Seeger. Uh, the song swappers, and he said that's Mary Travers. He said she'd be good if you could get her to work. And we, to this day, Mary passed away in two thousand nine. But to this day, Peter and I still don't know if what Albert meant was if you can get her to focus, or if he meant if you could because she has a small child, she'd be she would consider going into uh, you know a career. But nonetheless, she was already on board. I had already declined working in a. Group because uh, I had some things I wanted to do by myself, and I was commuting to Boston to sing up at Club Forty Seven in between Joan Baez and Tom Rush appearances up there. Uh, and Betty, my wife, had moved to Boston, so we saw each other up there. Uh, that was another reason for me to find a job up there. But anyway, I'm I'm back in the apartment in New York. It's uh, it's midweek. The phone rings, and it's Mary on the phone, and she says uh, I've got this guy over here who's visiting and we were wondering if we can come over and sing some songs. Well, you know, you put it like that. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I had worked up a solo tune for Mary to sing a uh, single girl, which eventually made it on a record actually. And S- single girl is sort of, uh, symbolic of the way that the tunes came to the trio in the beginning. I'd say at least half of our repertoire was drawn on, um, uh, Folk music's history, whether they were gospel tunes, uh, whether they were tunes by Pete Seeger or Woody Guthrie, or whether they were uh, songs like "The Golden Vanity," you know, that had been in the in the folk ballad lexicon for you know a hundred years. But we could not agree, and this is a wonderful moment. We're in my apartment, Peter, Mary, and I, and we know i know by this time that peter's uh represented by peter uh represented by albert and we want to see if we could sing together and we're not related we we ain't no everly brothers so we don't have that uh familial vibe that occurs when people of the same family and genetic background make harmonies so we're kind of fishing around But every song we come up with, everybody's got a different version of. Such was the way of folk music in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. Until we landed on, Mary had a little lamb, (laughs) little lamb. So first, Mary took the melody, Peter and I sang harmony. Then Peter took the melody, Mary and I sang harmony. Then I took the melody, Peter and Mary sang harmony. And no matter which way, we sliced or diced it. It sounded like a group. Uh, There was a, and I was just looking, you know, it's funny, uh, timing is everything. And I was just watching an old video of Mary singing uh, the other day. What was it? Light One Candle that Peter had written. Uh, And we sang, we didn't have to modulate for the woman to sing. You know, we didn't have to change to another key as sometimes is often done for choruses. Mary's vocal range was quite wide, as was mine, as was Peter's. So we were able to make a sound that uh, we would trade leads all the time. We, I think that was—and and isn't it curious in retrospect, talking about walking in through the door expecting one thing and leaving with another, that we were named Peter, Paul, and Mary, which meant the three individuals who— lent their voices to each other for performances, also had these moments in the sun where they would come out and do solo performances. Peter would sing two songs, bring me out. I would do some comedy, sing a song. I'd bring Mary out. She'd do two songs. Then the group would reassemble to finish the concert. So there was a kind of continuity. And it showed up not only in... As the group went on, not only in song selection, but the way that our harmonies came together. They were not traditional harmonies. That is to say, we could sing, uh, pronouncing the words at the same time, but we've more and more began to fall into the gospel kind of shout and answer, you know, where one would sing a lead and we, Mary and I, might answer Peter. Uh, or, Peter was beautiful at creating uh, alternative counter melodies. Sometimes it got to the point where we would write a whole other song and then lay that in against a traditional song. So our we, we kept each other interested in what we were doing by virtue of bringing our individual choices and surprising each other with uh, our song selections. And then Peter and I, as the mid-60s came, uh began to create more and more original material. So that's Okay. Yeah. Would would the group have been as successful if Albert was not the manager? Probably not. Uh, I Albert had a philosophy that was quite righteous in nature. Uh, it was a little bit of concealment because Albert was a great uh he, Albert had great taste. And so he knew the value of things before other people could see the value of things. So when he went to Warner brothers, for instance, uh, f- who were at that point, the Warner Warner brothers records was housed in a Quonset hut on the Burbank lots, the film lots. And I think they had maybe Bill Cosby and uh, uh, Bob Newhart. That was about it. Oh, and they had the Everly's I think, but they were looking for new material, Uh, but they weren't willing to go. uh, They weren't willing to let the artist control their own material. They wanted to dictate what the songs were. They wanted to assign a producer. Albert said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I'll tell you what though, you give us a single record deal, just one record. We don't need three records. You know, we're, we're not going to sign a long deal just give us one record and the right to do whatever we want and the budget for that. And then we'll see where it goes from there. (laughs) Well, needless to say, the first album went through the roof. Peter, Paul and Mary were established. We had lemon tree. Uh, We had, if I had a hammer, the and the music suited the times, but to put a capper on the description of Albert, his, Capacity to recognize the value of what he had to bargain with was kind of an invisible leverage. That is to say, he would go to a promoter uh, and say, "We would like to do the London Palladium, or we would like to do uh, Constitution Hall in in Washington D.C." And the promoters say, "Well, uh, you know, I can't, I can't give you a ten thousand dollar guarantee." And Albert said, "Oh no, 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 no." we don't want a guarantee. We just want 80% of the ticket sales. (laughs) So he was always on the come, not on the take. So he got a reputation for being a hard-nosed businessman, but actually he just had great faith in what he thought was a coming attraction. So, you know, an 80% turned out to be $24,000 who needed the guarantee. And that, uh, you know, I'm just making those numbers up, but relatively you understand what I'm saying. He was able to negotiate great terms for us no matter where we went. And he was our manager for the first 10, 11 years of our lives. And probably the greatest coup that he pulled off was when the trio recorded their individual solo albums in the early 70s. He negotiated that those records, the those tapes, those master tapes would revert to the artists as their property that Warner brothers was only leasing them. And so both Peter, Mary and myself had those records as our own property. They came back to us. Um, yeah. we Albert was pretty, pretty amazing guy. And what it's, <laughs> it's very ironic uh, being the uh, cuisine being the, Culinary, uh, artiste, uh, you know, he was really, he really understood good food, had a restaurant in Woodstock called the bear and I, how ironic that he should die, die on an airplane headed for London. Uh, and the first question that most people had was before or after the meal, <laughs> he was a delightful man, uh, with a great giggle. Uh, that's what I remember most about Albert. He used to go, he, he'd never laugh out loud. He would go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now
6: Dylan ultimately fell out with him over money. Um, uh, do you, I would ask a, what percentage did he take in? Uh, do you feel comfortable with the deal and how things, the financial accountings?
7: Well, for us, mind you, Albert put us together. So the fact that he and his office took 15% was absolutely proper as far as we were concerned. Not only that, the success was, of the group was so large and so immediate that, uh, you know, I, I think we would have had to develop some kind of uh, animosity much, much later, you know, maybe when the money was running out or or our career had turned, turned south, which it never did. Um, we did leave Albert, uh, after the time off for good behavior, but, but he had so many other irons in the fire by that time. He really didn't need us anymore. And I think Bobby's falling out with Albert was more a question of the publishing than it was yes. how Albert was handling his career. Uh, yeah. Okay. So how did
6: you decide to do the first hit was if I had a hammer. So how did you decide to do that?
7: No, no, no. First hit was Lemon Tree. Oh, right, right. It, Lemon Tree was on, uh, I, it was just on the Peter, Paul, and Mary album. And Buck Heron, a young DJ out of Oakland, um, can't remember the K-F-E-W-K-B-E, I don't know what the radio station was. Anyway, he pulled it off, made it the single of the week or something couple of other radio stations picked up on it. And, you know, the charts were intimate then. I mean, Billboard and Cashbox, they were the only charts around. Maybe Bill Gavin's report. Uh, and so people would see, what? Lemon Tree, what is that? Who are these people? Give me give me that album. Let me hear that. And so we went up to, we were top 30 with Lemon Tree. Well, you know, f- fame, uh, acceptance is quite often built on a previous record. And certainly it was in this case. And though Lemon Tree was not a political statement, it certainly set up the visibility of the group so that in 1962, 63, when the foment about civil rights was happening, uh, if I had a hammer was, uh, you know, became a calling card. Uh, its timing was expressive of a lot of the sentiment that uh, was felt across the country. And, you know, we were, <laughs> we were the right people at the right time with the right message. And following that, to be able to, because of Albert's handling of uh, Dylan and the opportunity to hear Dylan's tunes before anybody else heard them, when we heard Don't Think Twice and Blowing in the Wind one night backstage at the Gate of Horn in Chicago, we wanted to do both the tune. And as you well know, Blowing in the Wind not only became a number two hit uh, following If I Had a Hammer, but also has gone on to become a classic done by, you know, tons of performers and always has a, a certain resonance among uh, those people who still fight for human rights world around.
6: Okay, so when you say you heard it backstage on an acetate, or was mm-hmm. Bob himself there? No, no, no what no. was
7: going on? To- uh, no, no, on an acetate, yeah. Now, for an, most people, don't know what an acetate is. You know, that's like a a, a vinyl gone early. Uh, it <laughs> requires a a needle on cutting a groove, uh, and as the sound comes out, the groove moves sideways and up and down, lateral and vertical, and then when you put a needle on that and play it back through an amplified process, you get you get what was recorded. So, yes, it was an acetate played on a turntable at, at the bar the, at the gate of horn. Uh, but Albert was
6: managing Dylan. So was it just a matter of him... Uh... Feeding you these songs, or was it a whole cabal with uh, Albert and his acts that you were in it together and you had a relationship with Dylan? You were same scene, or were you really in
7: different verticals? Hmm. Uh, That's interesting. Uh, You you probably believe a lot of other conspiracy theories too, right? (laughs) Oh, believe me, I'm the opposite of a conspiracy. Oh, you are okay. Well, okay. No, there was no conspiracy involved. There was just a uh, you know a parallel of themes. You know, I mean, like I said, these are the times in which we lived. And, uh, you know, my first contact with Bobby as a passing artist was uh, when I was Master of Ceremonies in Greenwich Village. And Bobby came in to do a set. And he, at that time, the first time through uh, the Gaslight, uh, he sang mostly uh, Woody Guthrie tunes. And he had a voice. Very much that suited Woody Guthrie tunes. And then he went away to go on tour, I think I think it was in New Jersey. And he came back maybe a couple of months later and asked if he could uh, do a set. And I kind of being in charge of the entertainment, I said, yeah, sure, of course. And he got up on stage. And he did a song about uh, the Buffalo. Uh, can't remember what, the, it's not Buffalo Riders, Buffalo, I don't know. It was a song about a guy that gets a job out in the West. Uh, skinning buffalo, buffalo skinner, that's what it was. Uh, but these were totally different lyrics. The original lyric was about how the buffalo skinner goes to get paid and they give him skins. And he says, Well, I can't do anything with this. I gotta eat. And the guy says, Take it to the general store and trade in the skins and he'll give you the food. Oh, so that's the, this is told to a plaintive three chord folk melody, right? That's the traditional tune. Dylan comes back from two months in New Jersey singing at a folk club. And he starts playing the chords behind Buffalo Skinner. Only he's talking about a guy that's gone to work at this chess folk club in New Jersey. That's what the lyric is about. And the fact that when he comes to get his payroll, the, the owner of the, of the chess club gives him a chess set instead of money. <laughs> And he says, what am I supposed to do with this? And he says, take it to the bartender. So he goes to the bar and he's orders a beer and he pays him a king and gets two pawns and a rook in return. <laughs> <laughs> now the moment I saw that, you know, I um, mean, that was a revelation to me. Here was a, somebody who understood in a more significant level, the abstract of folk music, that it had the capacity to inform, tell a story but that it was timeless; that the that the arrangement uh, was conceivably just an opportunity to voice more contemporary concerns. So, two days later, I don't know if you remember, but a ferry runs aground in New York in New York Harbor in the, the Hudson River because counterfeit tickets were printed for a Bear Mountain picnic. And too many people got on board the ship. They refused to believe that they were counterfeit. And the ship sank. And the irony of that was not lost on the person who wrote the news article. And I handed the article to Dylan, who was there for the weekend. The next night, he came in and does the Talking Bear Mountain Picnic Massacre Blues. So, two days later, or thereabouts, I say to Albert, you got to come down and hear this guy. He is a genius so that was albert's i think first contact with dylan or first awareness of dylan but they were a great couple i mean dylan moved right into woodstock the, and what a great synergy between him and robbie and and uh you know the band i mean what a great great group of musicians and thinkers and the basement tapes are just so lovely um and you know an inspiration once again for being authentic, you know, find, find the best way in your own voice to speak to that which concerns you. And you'll include a lot of people because I think people can, they just sense the truth. It's like what Richard Nixon was not. Okay.
0: Let's go.
1: or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull.
4: A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink
5: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Back to that era. I'm old enough to be aware most people only read about it in books. But prior to the Beatles... There was a huge folk scene, even mm. to the point there was a TV show, <laughs> Putinanny. Yeah, right. You've you've referenced the fact that there was a scene in Greenwich Village, once again legendary, but it was happening when most people were not aware. Needless to say, with your success, you were uh, kings and queen of that scene. What was it
7: like in the folk world at that time? Well, don't forget, speaking of kings, the Kingston Trio who were out the door early, maybe two years prior to us uh, with folk music. But it was kind of good time, folk music. Uh, it was, uh, you know, let's all get together and have a, uh, a great time singing together. Um, let's have a couple of beers. Let's have a party. Let's uh, sing uh, Waltzing Matilda. Let's sing, you know, songs that we all know. Well, that was that was good, but this was a different kind of music. And so the folk scene sort of changed. Uh, bent in that direction and augured, uh, for a, a more concerned lyric in general that now the folk scene itself. Okay. I mean, there was the Kingstons, there was John Stewart who brought arguably to the Kingstons, a kind of political conscience that they hadn't had since Dave Gard left the group. Um, there was the Brandywine singers. There was, you know, um, Uh, the brothers four, there were, uh, you know, and Judy, and then there were the soloists. I mean, there was Joni, there was Judy Collins, there was, um, you know, I, the mind cannot really, I I can't fully embrace the breadth. Uh, it was just such a wide variety of artists who little by little made their, uh, made their statements through the medium of folk music and folk music began to have its effect on pop music because (laughs) here were, here were DJs, you know, they were used to playing lush ballads by Burt Bacharach and now they were playing a guitar and a harmonica and a guy singing, what is this? Well, you know, where's the, where's the luster? Where's the glamor? Where's, uh, and eventually that desire for a more, uh, how shall I say a more arresting sound began to manifest itself in rock and roll. And the lyrics subsequently were, uh, inspired in rock and roll. You know, I can't get no satisfaction in a sense was a far cry from what the world needs now is love. <laughs> sweet love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So folk music's impact on pop music in the mid sixties triggered The release of a variety, to me, one of the main, uh, main changes occurred when James Taylor, uh, came on the scene because his ability to blend, uh, a beautifully played acoustic guitar with piano drums, uh, kind of was the middle ground, you know, once again, we could have pretty music that spoke to very personal relations that had a broader conscience to it and then of course the beatles arrived with please please me and the stones continued and then we were into the loving spoonful and even to this day as a matter of fact i'm holding up your people can't see it but i'm holding up an album that says hope rises this is a this is a album that contains 15 new artists because a lot of people, uh, and I'm sure it's something that you will ask later in this interview, where can we hear music that pertains to the times and the crises in which we live now? And that music is there, but the niche for their, for its expression has narrowed considerably. I mean, there are many slices of opportunity now. And what music to life does, uh, has done is to sponsor these artists in their separate communities and to encourage them to record and to use music as part of the everyday outreach to their communities. But we'll talk about that later. Um, Anyway, the fact that I brought it up is part of the awareness that styles of music have less to do with the success of the lyric than they used to. Uh, You know, there was a time when country and Western was hillbilly. You know, there was a time when hip hop and rap was nothing but anger. There was a time, you know, when Bossa Nova was a lush uh, rather than pointed. Uh, So these changes, I think, came about to a large part because they were encouraged by folk music's encouragement to speak to those events that we share as a world community.
6: But you know, from the outside, not being a maker of this music, what do I know? Everyone, wherever you went, there was a guitar and you sang these songs. They were sung at summer camps, et cetera. And in addition, there was a lot of you know. Even when Kennedy was there, there were a lot of political issues. Certainly, starting with uh, what was going on in Cuba. Mm. It seemed from the outside that the folk artists had their finger on the pulse and were singing to
7: move. Sentiment in a certain direction. Did it feel like that on the inside? Oh, yeah. I mean, by 1963, for sure. Standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial with uh, Dr. King. Uh, I, I've referred to it many times. You know, Mary turned to Peter and said, hope is palpable. Okay. That begs the question, I got to
6: say, uh, although Obama ran on hope, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a number of years ago, 2008. Yeah. Uh, as someone who's seen it seen it all, contrast—I don't want to make it sound like a college question—contrast and compare the vibe in the American mentality then, as opposed to today.
7: I think there was some resistance to the human rights movement, uh, particularly as it uh, presented itself in the uh, as a challenge to the white racists in the South, uh, and that it wasn't. But the overall effectiveness of that movement, of the civil rights movement, was that it expressed a desire for America to get righteous, uh, to be inclusive. As its history has indicated, it was Uh, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. This This was a chance to go on public record. Uh, as the encouragement, the, and that then morphed into, oh, I see, we can, as a large group, get together and in if not influence people's opinions, we can at least express our own in numbers that would encourage them to discover what the true facts behind this are. And so that's when it morphed into the, uh, the anti-war movement. Uh, it was a natural chain of events. I think, uh, it, in a sense, empowered large groups of people to make statements. And the music was a thread that ran through all of that. Okay. But today, do you believe
6: that we are off course or we can only self-correct and have hope and where is music's place in today's consciousness?
7: Well, you know, you're talking to Mr. Hopeful here. I mean, I, I am loath to despair. Uh, I mean, I see inequities still, uh, but I know that in my own life, uh, I've seen change, so I can't help but feel that everybody's life has the possibility to change. And I know that we're at loggerheads uh, conceptually with many of the people who back uh, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, But I can't help but feel that when we discover the larger issue, and that is one of respect and compassion, we will ultimately be joined again. Now, you can't legislate compassion. You can only invite it by being compassionate yourself. You can't legislate forgiveness, but, you know, taking a page out of Mandela's handling of apartheid, uh, you can have public forums where people voice their concerns and are, if not assuaged, at least aware that reconciliation is possible because every human life has value. So, the, uh, the hope that we will begin to consider the larger, uh, inspiration for the human, uh, for the human experience, uh, it goes on. Um, that's why, you know, (laughs) the song I sang to you before about love with a capital L that's, that is the awareness uh, sure, the atheists will not accept the G word, you know, but if they've ever been in love, then they have an inkling of what it is that can draw us together. And that means that, uh, you know, the the better angels in us uh, begins to embrace and include uh, our fellow human beings. I think town halls, you know, actually are going to become a very important aspect because on a local level, they will allow us to voice concerns that relate directly to our lives. And then we're going to be able to translate that into a larger picture. Okay. Let's go
6: back to the sixties in our timeline. The Beatles come along, they wipe out a zillion acts, very few sustain. Okay. The beach boys sustain the four seasons sustain, but ultimately Peter, Paul, and Mary end up having a couple of gigantic hits. One is I dig rock and roll music. Can you tell (laughs) us the story of that?
7: Yeah. Yeah. I got a, I got a great friend. I, I think I mentioned him earlier, Jim Mason, who, uh, produced a couple of things for Poco. Uh, I was introduced to him, uh, by Dave Dixon, who, uh, was the voice of Norman Normal in a cartoon that I did for Warner Brothers. Um, Jim Mason came in, uh, sat down in the living room of uh, Dave Dixon's living room where we used to in, in New York City on Jane Street, and uh, said, I got a new tune for you. And he sang with the most inane lyrics. You've ever heard in your life about my girl? She left me on a Thursday, and I wonder if she ever cared, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I, when it got all done, I looked at Jim and I said, That's the hippest piece of music to the most banal lyrics I've ever heard in my life. And he said, Well, what do you think it's about? And so between the three of us, we started writing I Dig Rock and Roll music. Now, We just went through this period of time where I did my toilet for you and a couple of sound effects. So I love to mimic. Uh, And this was, we knew all the people that we were mimicking. By this time, we had, uh, Peter, Mary, and I had met the Beatles on the set of Hard Day's Night. Uh, And I loved, I mean, ever since Please Please Me, I was blown away by their harmonic inventions and their recordings. Uh, You know, and Donovan, bless his. Bless His Soul was was part folky, too. I mean, he came to a couple of Newport folk festivals uh, and was the one guy from that era who always, I don't know, our paths seemed to cross all the time. Uh, and nicest nicest man, um, but with a very distinctive singing style. And, of course, there was the mamas and the papas. Oh, yeah. The John Phillips signature stuff. And Mary knew Cass really well. And so we put this thing together almost like in secret. I mean, it was like we went into the laboratory, Peter played guitar and recorded it backwards. So we get that, you know, that backward sound. Uh, I imitated Donovan's voice. We did the, Mary did the, Oh yeah. The the tagline for the Mamas and the Papas. And here's the funny story. We're in Australia when the test pressing comes through. Well, we don't have any way to play a test pressing. We're in a hotel, you know, so we go to the local record store, and we put it on, and we bu- ask if we can borrow one of the booths. And the guy says, "Yeah, I'll just leave the door open." So we left the door open. We play it, and he says to us, "Who's who's that? <laughs> who's that singing?" And we said, "It's uh, Peter Paul and Mary," because he didn't he didn't recognize us. And he said, "Well, that'll never sell." <laughs> 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 so that was uh and that was a remarkable uh comeback, but that's not the true irony. The true irony is uh leaving on a jet plane, which happened in nineteen seventy just before the group uh took its seven years off for good behavior and that irony was based on uh, the the lament and the angst that was shared by so many families and uh, their sons and their daughters and the soldiers returning to or departing for the war in Vietnam. Uh John Denver's tune was just touched so many buttons at that point. And that that tune was on an album that was released 2 years earlier that had I dig rock and roll music on it. Well, I remember that because you know in uh Youth groups, religious youth
6: groups, myself, I was involved. Album 1700 was a big deal. We always sang Leaving on a Jet Plane. Then what is ultimately a hit was such a surprise. Mm. But I have to ask, those of us in number, it was called Album 1700 because it was number 1700 in the Warner Brothers catalog.
7: Who came up with that? Our idea was to try to escape the title. And we just wanted the number of the album to be the title. And we were thinking it was going to be like, 1647 or you know 2012 or whatever we didn't care we just wanted that was our idea that was peter mary and i said let's just have the number we told that to warners warner said fine (laughs) so when 1700 came out we said 1700 that's an even number what's so memorable about that and you got the word album in front of it we didn't want that but it turned out not to matter because 1700 had really quite a few major turning point tunes for us. By that time, Peter and I were generating a lot of the material. Um, I don't I don't remember what was on that album specifically besides I dig rock and roll music, but I think it might've had the songless love. It might've had him. It might've had, uh, might've had the house song on it. There were, those were mine. I think, I think the great Mandela was on it. Peter's uh, anti-war tune. Yeah, that was a, and it was the last of the albums done by Phil Ramone, who was a, you know, a production genius. Uh, he, he did come back and do a album that disappeared quickly called reunion, uh, or no, not the reunion album. He did the one after that lifelines, live lifelines and lifelines live where we, uh, reconnected in the early eighties with, uh, John Sebastian and Dave Van Rock and Odetta and uh, Richie Havens and uh, uh, Susan Werner, a lot of our friends, Uh, Emmylou Harris to do uh, an album songs.
6: Okay. Tell me the story though of Too Much and Nothing because that was on the Basement Tapes Mm. and was unknown. The Basement Tapes album, there have been a number of iterations, but the original double album was not out yet. So most people did not know the song, and this not only was a Dylan song. The ultimate arrangement was different, and it had very modern recording productions. Mm. Yep,
7: yep. Well, you know we got we got better at setting the tunes, and we also had access to really brilliant musicians. That slide guitar and too much of nothing is just. I mean there is always an attempt when you're producing a piece of lyrical music to have the music join the lyric, uh, you know, as an additive uh, to be part of what's being said, not only suit the mood, but maybe even embellish the character a little bit. Sometimes it gets out of hand, you overshoot. I can remember there are some times where I used to play some color chords to a Woody Guthrie tune by color chords. I mean, like a major seventh, you know, or diminished or something. And Peter would go, you can't play that. And I said, Why not? He said, that's not what the song is about. And I, you know, you understand on a certain level, you have to capitulate to what the song is trying to say. But on too much of nothing, you know, the embellishment really suited it. Uh, we had a great drummer. I don't remember what his name was, but uh, yeah. Too much of nothing can make a man feel ill at ease. And that certainly is the time in which we live now, isn't it? That's for sure. Okay. Now, ultimately, the group separates and everybody puts out a
6: solo album. Mm. Uh, you're the only one who has a hit, and it's a pretty big hit, the wedding song. Mm. And then ultimately you even donate the income from that song and start a foundation. Can you tell us all of that?
7: Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the creation of the song was, uh, I had gone through a real spiritual turnaround. Peter saw that. Uh, We are, uh, you know, we are still a trio, but it's getting a little wobbly uh, because I'm beginning to proselytize on stage. And, uh, really challenging the, uh, the Jewish audience because I haven't learned the language of inclusiveness yet. And and yet, Peter approaches me and says, you know, Mary Beth and I are getting married and we would love you to bless our wedding with a song. And I, I've said this from stage before, you know, I I knew that I wasn't authorized to dispense blessings, but I knew where I could get one. <laughs> so... So I prayed for the song, and the the prayer was unique insofar as it was not give me a song for Peter's wedding. It was, how would you, capital Y, manifest yourself at Peter's wedding? And the lyric was, I am now to be among you at the calling of your hearts. Rest assured this bozo, which I changed to troubadour. Is acting <laughs> is acting on my part anyway the lyric came so quickly I you know could barely write it down and you've heard these stories from other songwriters before where it just flows uh, but it was direct answer to prayer so flash forward nine months later I've recorded it on a solo album the trios no longer together and I am driving to New York, back to the Rye House from Scarsdale. I think, I can't remember. Maybe we were visiting somebody in New Hampshire. But anyway, I've got to make a decision about publishing. Every one of the tunes has got, you know, I'm doing a tune by Bill Hughes called Meanings Will Change. I've, you know, I've written a lot of the tunes that are on the album, but there's this tune that I can't really credibly. Except the authorship of, because I prayed for it. I mean, you know, they had a category in songwriting that said, good steward, maybe I'll qualify, you know, but they don't allow that in publishing. You either wrote it or you didn't write it. So as I'm driving, I turned to Betty and I say, you know, I'm going to give this tune, I'm going to give this tune to a foundation. And then so that way the monies will still come in. There won't be a new Porsche in the Warner brothers parking lot that owns to that belongs to some executive because he didn't have to pay out the money for the publishing. The money will go to not now, mind you this is still just a track on an album. I don't know that it's going to go, you know, platinum as a single or become a, a mainstay for weddings. Uh, so I gave it to the, Public Domain Foundation made sure that everybody knew that that's where the money should go. And you know what? The Public Domain Foundation fostered the Music to Life organization, which now supports young singer-songwriters all over America in their various communities. It also, you know, in that process, uh, supported a lot of other charities too. And the nice thing about it, Bob, was I got to choose who the charities were because it was such a homespun foundation. I mean, yeah, I gave, you know, public domain foundation gave $30,000 to Oxfam, which a lot of people know the works of, but it also gave like $41 and 34 cents to a church in Alabama to get its roof fixed. That kind of flexibility was just a joy to me. Um, You know, eh, And people didn't know where to apply to the foundation, but the monies went for, you know, for good causes. And I felt like I had made a statement and the song continues to make a statement.
6: Okay. You know, you can't talk about the music business without talking about the money. Mm. What do we know back then? You know, Concert tickets could be a dollar (laughs) 50 records could be $2 and 50 cents. You didn't write a lot of these songs. Now, on one level economics were different. There was more of a middle class. We didn't have billionaires. So I guess it's, you know, a multi-part question, which was a, did you see the money? Could you live with a lifestyle you were comfortable with? Do you felt feel like you were ripped off when the heyday was done? Was there any money coming in? Oh, gee. Oh,
7: that's such an uninformed question, Bob. (laughs) Well, lay it on (laughs) me. Criticize me. Go for it. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, let's work backwards. Even today, from Warner Brothers Publishing or New World Publishing, which is my own, or uh, Peter's, uh, I think it's Silver Dawn Publishing, we get accountings they come in the form of two inch thick uh pieces of paper a two inch stack of papers typed out by a computer that says for instance too much of nothing singapore (laughs) cents." these things add up And when you're talking about a worldwide release, they add up to a considerable amount of money. So even to this date, uh, I probably just my part of it. And I'm, you know, I didn't have puff the magic dragon, you know, I didn't have, I would say the, the lion's share of the publishing, but even to this date, I'm well into five figures, uh, publishing monies that come in quarterly. Um, so, I'm just blessed beyond belief, really. And I think most people who had record deals from the 60s who are revisited for nostalgia purposes or revisited because an advertising campaign wants to use their music, the ASCAP and AFTRA and all of the unions that have protected artists these past years have done their work very well. And to the extent that you... Earn in royalty, uh, you get a pretty fair shake from the world around you. Um, so I have I have no complaints, no quarrel with the way that the monies were played out. There probably are horror stories based on unscrupulous managers, you know, or unscrupulous companies who had you sign on a dotted line in invisible ink that went away, or went through a shredder, or into some offshore account. But for the most part, the people that we dealt with, uh, were very upright, very, uh, yeah, very honorable folks. And most of the music industry I think is that way. Well, as I say, there's certainly horror stories. Thank God it wasn't, uh, down in your neck of the
6: woods. Let's go to the music to life. When, so, when did you start Music to Life and what is the mission you sort of generally said and what are the activities of the organization? Oh, thanks
7: for asking because that is a contemporary thing and most people like to dwell in the land of nostalgia when they talk to a, a former member of Peter, Paul, and Mary. The fact is, as I mentioned before, folk music has an ongoing life and that means that there are writers singer-songwriters out there who are writing about contemporary events, contemporary concerns, and they are a group of songwriters nationally and probably even worldwide now that an organization called Music to Life that was begun by my daughter, Elizabeth uh, Sunday Stuckey, uh, support. But the evolution is interesting. And it's interesting because most people can identify with the beginnings easier than they can with where it has come in the beginning. There were folk festivals and at these folk festivals, there would be singer songwriters. One of the primary folk festivals was in Texas in the little town called Kerrville. And every year beginning in the late, uh, 1900s, uh, Elizabeth, my daughter, and I would scan anywhere between 300 and 500 uh, applicants to be included on an album uh, called Music to Life and, uh, and appear at the Silverthorne Theater uh, as one of 10 finalists uh, who would receive, receive awards. Those were curious concerts uh, beginning then. First of all, they were recorded live and released later as an album. But what 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 year was this? Nineteen ninety eight, in the beginning. But it went on until two thousand six, two thousand nine. Actually, I think it was the last one. Uh, and they supported and encouraged singer songwriters to speak about uh, contemporary concerns. Um, the it was recorded live. The CD was released, uh, didn't really make much money, but was great to go on record as having uh, encouraged these singer songwriters. Well, over the course of that period of time, my daughter Liz began to understand that many of these artists didn't do the music just because it was a hip thing to do. They did it because they were factoring as a lifestyle into the community. And Concerned with homelessness, concerned with the environment, concerned with. So the music wasn't only to be sung at a rubber chicken benefit dinner. It was actually could be used with a group of people as a kind of an anthem for them. So by community sponsorship, uh, they, for instance, in Austin, Texas, now there's a homeless group that gathers weekly, and they make up songs together. Um, they sing together. They have more of a sense of family than they ever could uh, isolated, as you would imagine they would be. Um, the they're singing in prisons now, um, so that music becomes kind of uh, educational and a collective tool for the movement itself. Um, and to that end, uh, my daughter, Liz, has started the activist artists program, which these two of the two of the people on this album are activist artists. The others are still in the point where they're commenting on the circumstances, but uh, not taking a role in the community yet. So we raise money. We mentor them. um uh, The most, one of the local guys, uh, you know, Miles Bullen down in Portland, Maine, was a former addict, and we support him on a monthly basis, and he deals with high schools. I mean, he has to do it because of the pandemic now, you know, through Zoom or through, uh, you know, through online methods. But we support these artists and their involvement in their neighborhoods as they bring their message of hope. And they're, uh, yeah, as they bring their message of hope through music to their their fellow citizens.
6: Okay. Now, you recently put out an album. And how hands-on
7: are you personally? Uh, well, you know, that, that bring, that's a good question. And it brings to mind the fact that I didn't properly answer the question about the earlier aspect of, who chose these songs to go on this album out of the three hundred to five hundred tunes? That was a great cast at kathy mattea uh, Judy Collins uh, Tom Chapin, Tom Paxton, a lot of the folkies uh served on a board that analyzed and listened to these tunes. so this same concept now came to bear on these fifteen tunes. Uh, my involvement, aside from being one of the judges, was to sequence i'm from the old school i'll bet you are too i when i put a record on i love to hear what the next tune is going to be i mean it's part of what makes radio so fascinating if the disc jockey is really good then he tells a story with the songs that he tends to program so sequencing was important to me uh on this album hope rises um that was probably my major contribution uh The, the fact is the, I would say fully a dozen of the 15 tunes were selected just by quantitatively, uh, saying this song spoke, spoke to me on a scale of zero to 10. This was a nine, or this was an eight and a half, or this was a, but three of the songs, and I can't remember which ones they are, but three of the songs are on the album because, well, they damn well should be, (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those, okay, everybody gets a personal vote at some point. You know, you you get to, it's the opposite of a veto. <laughs> it's a must-have. So uh so it was mostly a democratic process that brought the songs together. But the uh there's a great deal of excitement, and you know what really knocks me out? These are 15 very diverse artists. I mean, we're talking hip-hop, we're talking reggae, we're talking uh we're talking folky. We're talking lots of echo. We're talking no echo. We're talking spare. We're talking lush. And I don't, you know, I'd like to claim credit that because of the sequencing you're drawn into it. But the nicest compliment that we've gotten so far is that people can put on the record and they can play the entire record and they're not put off by any of the changes. I mean, as diverse as all of these tracks are, they flow one to another. Now, One's got to secretly hope that the reason for that is because the intention is selling the tune, that the caring that these artists have is being expressed in a way that's subliminal, and you just can't help but warmly respond to it. Now, needless to
6: say, the landscape in society, in the music world is completely different from when you guys came up in the early 60s. So when we talk about this type of music, I'll use labels which, you know, don't really nail it, but message music, Mm. music that might, you know, reflect society or want to push it into a certain degree. Mm. Many people who've been around felt that we'd see a surge of this music after the surge when we had Iraq war in the early part of the century. But what we know is no specific Uh, social commentary, anti-war political song has come top of mind in society. So I must ask you, is that a matter of the breadth of music today in that it's almost hard to have anything heard by everybody or are we lacking the one specific writer or artist who will make something definitive
7: and then start a new movement? I think both of those <laughs> possibilities are true. For instance, uh, I will remind you of Bruce Springsteen and his important position in bringing to the public mind issues and perspectives on the way that we live our lives together, whether that, whether he enacted it through his, you know, 10,000 people in an, in an arena or whether he does it on Broadway. So, and and Lady Gaga, you know, uh, t- to a certain extent. But these Lady Gaga is perhaps more niche in in terms of what she is expressing. Uh, but nonetheless, so that's why that's why the the other possibility that you introduced is also correct. There are just so many fragments of musical opportunity that exist now for artists that they have to pick their particular community to speak to. There is not going to be one—I mean, (laughs) unless the Messiah is going to arrive and be accompanied by a 12-piece band and bring a whole different kind of music that everybody immediately recognizes as the answer to all of the foibles of humankind, that's not going to happen in the way that we were able to accept Music of the civil rights movement, music of the anti-apartheid movement, music of the environmental movement. I mean, these are, uh, they're bigger than splinters. They're probably even planks, but they're not an entire house. Interesting metaphor.
6: Okay. Uh, Just to cover one thing before, because we're going to have to wrap it up. You have to go and we've gone at length. Do you ever get tired of singing these legendary songs.
7: (laughs) I do have a little trouble with puff the magic dragon. Um, though, you know, sometimes just in defense of the poor dragon, who's maligned for his apparent or alleged association with drugs. I don't mind standing up for the poor little guy, uh, you know, and setting the record straight that he is really just a song about a kid who's coming of age. Uh, It's Tom Paxton had a great line for this, Bob. He said, it's all right to look at the past. You just don't want to be caught staring at it. (laughs) And to the extent that I'm still writing new tunes and embracing tunes by other artists uh, that speak uh, to the here and now, uh, I feel like it's important to include. Some songs of the past, but it's also important to register the fact that we are living contemporarily, and that there is a possible future before us that has a brighter light uh, than the than the world that we're living in now.
6: On that note of optimism, I don't think I can add anything more, Noel. This has been fantastic. You're very erudite, very articulate. You can speak as
7: well as sing. I really appreciate you spending the time. Bob, I was not looking forward to this at all. Two hours out of my life was not the kind of thing that I wanted to do. And you are an irascible, wonderful old host who brought the best out of my history. I I enjoyed so much uh, this time with you. And once again... To make that analogy, I entered this door with an expectation, and I am leaving with a far greater excitement than I thought I would have. Thanks so much for having me. Well, to use
6: that old Yiddish expression, I'm velling, even though people can't see it on the screen, but, you know, you have to understand, you know, there's a huge thought that Today's society, youngsters don't have a sense of history. They talk about baseball players not knowing the people before. But for those of us who live through this era, okay, not only is it a thrill to speak with you, but I am aware, I mean, the, the folk era has been distilled essentially to Dylan going to electric a <laughs> uh, Newport, okay? <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, forgetting the whole essence of what was going on. Not that that was not important. But relative to the scene at large, which is much larger, and the fact that you can uh, talk about it and put it in context is certainly thrilling to me. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. It's like, you know, if we had more time, what was it really like? I mean, I grew up only 50 miles away. I'll tell you something that you'll get, which most people won't. And then I was a freshman in high school. And with social studies, we were going to go on a trip, a field trip. And we we're deciding where to go. And we were going to go to Sturbridge Village. Mm -hmm, You're aware of mm -hmm, Sturbridge Village, right? That's, you know, just over the line from Connecticut, Massachusetts. It's kind of like Williamsburg. People know better where it's, you know, a reenactment of the way life used to be. All of a sudden, the guy in the back, Steve Belenke says, we can't go there. It's terrible. All the people, it's crowded. And we're all sitting there in class, you know. What is he talking about? Sturbridge village. And then somebody says, you mean Greenwich
7: village. <laughs> <laughs>
6: <laughs> and as I say, it was such a scene, you know, it's funny that, you know, things happen. I wouldn't say right under my nose. Cause I was young at the time and I was not living in the city and I didn't have wheels, mm. but these, you know, scenes fomented and you were right there at the epicenter. Mm. And as I say, once again, you can talk about it, which is very impressive to me. So maybe at a future date, we can go deeper into some of those scenes. But thanks again so much for doing this.
7: Robert, it was my pleasure. Thank you again. It was really fun.
6: Till next time, this is Bob Lexlis.